You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Jordan Grummet, a.k.a. Doc G, and today we're going to talk to Brian Feraldi about being an amateur in the stock market and yet beating the pros anyway over the next decade here on Earn and Invest. I was recently recording a panel on cryptocurrency. We were talking about tokenization. Converting an asset into digital tokens or coins for distribution through the blockchain. For instance, a $200,000 property could be turned into 200 coins and each could be bought and sold. It suddenly clicked in my mind. This could be the biggest theoretical threat to index investing. What if token markets grew in tandem to the stock market and eventually caused a total devaluation of traditional equities? Although tokenization is not the topic of conversation today, This discussion reminded me that the future is anything but certain. Maybe it's time to start questioning again our long-held ideas about correct and incorrect ways to invest. Today, let's talk about the future. Brian Feraldi has an intense interest in money, personal finance, and investing, which eventually led to becoming a writer at The Motley Fool in 2015. Not only has he written thousands of articles, appeared on hundreds of videos and podcasts, but has also been hosting a members-only Zoom session entitled Fool Live that has helped investors weather the financial uncertainty during the COVID pandemic. His book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?, will be released by Choose FI Media early next year. Brian, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Let's talk financial uncertainty. What are some of the lessons learned from the brief COVID recession? Boy, that's a broad topic, and there are lots of lessons to learn from the COVID recession. Uh, the first thing was it was a really weird recession in in so many ways. I mean, I vividly remember where I was when I all of a sudden realized, oh, this is a big deal. Like it, I, I previously, it was like something that was in the news, something that was ethereal, and then all of a sudden it went to my kid's school is shut down and now I'm a stay-at-home teacher to these uh, to these children. When you combine that with what happened with the economy, I mean, there was so much change happening in, in the world uh, during the month of March 2020. So much change. So many companies were forced to, to go from fully in-person to fully remote. That forced people to have business model changes. People were laid off to me, that just reinforces something that I've always believed about the future. It's unpredictable. Nobody nobody in January 2020 would have predicted 2020 was going to be a year of a global pandemic and, and the biggest pandemic in, in, in almost 100 years. Nobody. Nobody was predicting that. And even in January 2020, we had signs that that, that could be on uh, the possibility. So Moreover, nobody predicted. Nobody would have predicted that the the stock market in the United States was about to drop thirty percent in a month, which was the fastest drop ever, and was immediately followed by one of the greatest rebounds uh, in history. So it just shows me that the future is always unpredictable. I was about to say, did it surprise you? It was so fast. I mean, we have the stories we hear from the world: people losing their jobs, people staying home to take care of their kids. We hear the economic pandemonium. And then on the other hand, we look at the stock market and it was literally a two-month recession. Yeah, that, that it's crazy what would happen there. I would have predicted, I would have predicted even when the stock market started crashing, that it was going to be a horrible year, 18 months, two years, similar to what we saw in 2008. I mean, the, the unemployment rate skyrocketed a far higher than anything that we even saw 
in, in the Great Recession, and yet stocks fell for essentially a month and then immediately re- rebounded. And during that time, what, what, what's interesting, fascinating about that time is so many of us were stuck at home that the demand for investing uh, skyrocketed. So many people were figuring for the first time, I might as well learn about investing. I have all this time on my hand. And people started paying attention to the stock market in March and April of 2020. The unfortunate thing about that is anybody that started investing in that time frame, the next 11 months for them was whatever I buy goes, <laughs> goes up, up immediately. And that is their that that is their first introduction to the market. Their introduction is stocks only go up immediately. All you have to do is invest in da- almost anything and you're instantaneously rewarded. What we've seen in 2021 is much more volatility. Many of the many of the companies that were red hot in 2020 have become ice cold in 2021 as the realities of their business fundamentals and what's happened to the stock price kind of caught up with each other. So it's been a it's been a fascinating time in history over the last 18 months. A lot of day traders and swing traders were born of the COVID pandemic and being home as you were talking about. Traditionally on podcasts like this, we focus on things like financial independence. And since we're financially financial independence oriented, we talk about broad index investing as a religion. Your history is a lot different. You started investing in 2004 and you were very much into individual stocks. Tell me about those early experiences. Yeah, I, first off, I'm I'm a big proponent of index fund uh, investing. When people come up to me uh, in my real life, or anybody asks me what should I invest in, I the, my default answer is index funds. I think index funds are the right choice for let's call it 98% of people, 98% uh, of of the time. However, some some people are wired differently, such as myself, and I am just fascinated by businesses, by the way that the stock market works. I actually really enjoy thinking through business models, researching companies, and buying individual stocks. Um, so let's just let's just start there and say most people should just in, uh, invest in index funds and, and call it a day. J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth, could not have been better titled. It is The Simple Path to Wealth. But I do think uh, I, I'm an advocate for buying individual stocks, assuming you have the time, interest, and inclination to do the work necessary to, to find, buy, and hold companies um, uh, the correct way. And the correct way to me is, is taking the long-term view. So what I'm trying to do with my portfolio is kind of essentially construct my own index fund. I'm, I'm, I'm adding companies that I handpick to that fund. I'm holding on to them voraciously for years and years and years, and I'm selling them very, very, very uh, uh, slowly uh, over, over time. And I think that by doing so, I'm essentially building an index fund that that should outperform the market over time. And that is something that that uh, a lot, doesn't sit well with a lot of people that are super into indexing because they believe that that's folly, that it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible uh, to beat the market. And I hear all the time that number one argument is, well, professional, professional investors investors can't do it. What chance do you have as an, as an individual investor? And the, the fascinating thing about money is it's the one category when being a professional is a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage, which blows people's minds to think about because you can't name any other, any other subject where being a professional at something, you would have a disadvantage over amateurs. But amateurs have amateurs and individual investors have one massive, one massive advantage over professional investors. They're managing their own money. They are accountable to themselves. So that means they can truly invest with a multi-year time horizon, a multi-year time horizon. When you're managing somebody else's money, uh, you have to con- constantly prove to whoever you're, you're managing that you're doing a good job and that you are up to date on the latest trends. And you are judged by very short-term uh, per- performance indicators, months, quarters, or, or even a, a year. So that is the time horizon that you are forced to, to invest in. And individual investors have none of those uh, restrictions. So that's why I believe that if you are an individual investor and you can truly take a multi-year time horizon, you have a huge advantage over professionals. Now, there's an evolution of your skill set. You talk about being kicked in the teeth a little bit in 2004 when you started. Talk about some of those early losses. Did you make some big mistakes in the beginning? Oh, I've been kicked in the teeth so many times. I mean, if you're going to invest, you are just going to, you're going to make mistakes. 
period. Uh, back in 2004, when I was really starting to get into investing in the stock market, the primary way that we consume, that I learned about things wasn't through the web, it was through books. There, there are lots of wonderful books out there that can teach you about investing and and learn, digging through financial statements and stuff, but it's nothing like today. Like we don't have, today you can look at podcasts and, and, and video tutorials and it, the amount of information that you can access today is just, is just vastly different. But when I was starting out 2004, uh, I didn't know anything. Like I wasn't taught any of this stuff in school. And I say that as a business major. I say that as a business major. I wasn't taught anything about how to uh, find, buy, select, vet uh, stocks uh, in, in school. That is something that I learned both the hard way by putting your own money on the line and, and uh, consistently seeking out high quality teachers and learning from there. I've been a paying member of The Motley Fool myself for years before I started to, uh, to work for them. And one of my favorite things about them once you become a member of the Motley Fool, they have this wonderful community of people that openly share information and research with each with each other. And just digging through there, the amount of information that you can learn about how to invest and how to think about businesses is just is just amazing. We've been talking about index investing, and you were saying that you like to pick stocks because it's exciting to you. You have the interest, you have the time, you have the inclination. A lot of people don't, but it does beg the question then, do the index investors, are we accepting somewhat suboptimal returns? I mean, clearly it sounds like there is a mechanism to do better than the market. And I think this becomes important, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, with this idea that maybe the equity markets aren't going to do as well over the next decade or two as they have been in the past. But before we get to that point, are we somewhat accepting suboptimal returns? Of all the asset classes that have existed historically, the place to have your capital for long-term periods of time has been equities, period. Uh, stocks are, are the asset class that performs the best over long periods of time. And that's because when you're an owner of equities, you are an owner of American of, of businesses. And those businesses are constantly innovating, rolling out new products, increasing their, their prices, expanding internationally, and just benefiting from the broad growth of, of, of society. And their profits are increases, and that has driven uh, the, the prices of those businesses to be higher. The long-term returns of the stock market are somewhere around 10% per year, uh, nominally 6.5% per year after accounting for inflation. And if you compound your capital at that rate for any period of time, a decade or two, uh, in a working career, that amount of growth can turn a small amount of money into life-changing amounts of money. So I don't think that index investors are doing anything wrong. I think that they're putting their money into the uh, historically best asset class. The question is, is is that historic return, uh, which is likely to happen over over long periods of time, 20, 30 uh, years, uh, will that get you to your goals? If the answer is yes, index funds is a great choice. Will that get you to your goals? It's an easier question to answer when we look at historical returns, but looking into the future, there's been a lot of guesswork about what's going to be happening over the next decade or two. In fact, in 2017, Jack Bogle, before he died, basically said that he's expecting equity returns to be somewhere around 4%, which for a lot of people's plans and portfolio would be fairly suboptimal. First and foremost, do you agree with that assessment? I mean, as you look to the next decade, I mean, that was 2017, right? So we're already almost five years past that. But as you look into the 2020s, do you think this assessment that equities returns are going to be lower is a valid one? Just looking at the returns of the S&P 500 since 2017, the S&P 500 is up 110%. From, from today to when uh, Bogle roughly said uh, the returns moving forward are only going to be 4% per year. So if he thought the returns were going to be that low uh, four years ago, now that we're essentially double uh, the prices, it's logical to assume that his assessment today would be an even lower expected return moving forward. If you look back at the history of the stock market, the, the, this, it, it's, a, it's a cyclical uh, thing. It goes through a multi-year or even multi-decade period of expansion and, and bull market. And then that is usually uh, preceded by a long period of time uh, where the fundamentals of the market ha are are behind prices and there, there's a mismatch there and prices decline in order to catch up to the long-term fundamentals. It would not surprise me if over, say, the, the returns during the 2020s over the next 10 years were, were far lower than, than the average returns. So if he was predicting 4% and you told me it's 2030 now and the real returns of the markets are somewhere around 3%, I would say that's not all that surprising, but 
predicting the future, especially on a macro scale, is folly. There, there are so many variables uh, that control that number. If you were to tell me that that was what happened, I would say that that makes sense. As you say that predicting on a macro level what will happen is somewhat folly, it does leave us in a funny place, right? Because we know we have what we consider these very high returns. We know that there's this idea that equity returns may be lower. In your opinion, what do you think the appropriate asset allocation would look like then for the 2020s? Like, has it changed compared to where we were 10 years ago? Well, the appropriate asset allocation is always going to be a personal decision. So obviously throwing that disclaimer out there, we're in a very interesting period in time right now. I mean, if you're our, if you have capital to invest, what are your, what are your choices? Uh, Let's keep it in a checking account that pays zero and in real returns, negative uh, considering inflation. Uh, You could put it into the bond market. That pays almost nothing. And again, in real returns, likely to be negative. You can put it into real estate. And I would say, broadly speaking, real estate prices are inflated. And it's hard to get a, a high return on that. You, you, you probably can get a, a, a positive real return uh, on that. The stock market uh, valuations are, are very high. So I, I would say that moving forward, the, the long-term returns are likely to be uh, below average. And then you can do alternative assets such as art or farmland or, or, or crypto, all of which have their own kind of uh, ups and downs to them. So investors that are looking to allocate their capital and pick an asset allocation are in a very tricky spot uh, today. Personally, the, 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 of all those asset classes, the one that I understand is the stock market. So that is the asset class that I am going to have the vast majority of my capital in, likely for my entire life, because it's the market that, I, again, I understand the most. And over long periods of time, it is the asset class that uh, performs, performs the best. But what each individual does is totally dependent on their personality, <laughs> uh, almost more than anything else. I want to get into then how maybe someone who's an index investor and is saying, okay, equity returns for the market as a whole may be lower. How do I start looking at individual companies and stocks? But before we do that, I want to go and talk just briefly about some of those alternatives you talked about. You mentioned artwork, farmland, which you're talking about is securitization, right? There are companies out there, um, some of which have been sponsors of this podcast uh, that securitize these different assets. Tell me what you think about those markets, just as you've been seeing them. I know you say, boy, I understand the stock market. I understand equities most, but you've been hearing about them. What do you think about it? Like masterworks or those type of things? Yeah, those are things I've not done a lot of work on. Broadly speaking, I think it's good that those those products exist because they do give individual investors that can study those markets another way to invest. Whereas how would you invest in like art? Like how would you do that beforehand unless you had hundreds of thousands or or millions of dollars? And again, that's not something that I I am probably going to do myself because I don't I don't understand uh, understand it, but I I broadly like the fact that there are more ways that individual investors can deploy their capital. And another good one to talk about is crypto. Everyone's talking about crypto. Do you have any strong feelings about it? Yeah, I, I for for many years I was not a believer in in crypto, uh, not because I didn't think the technology was fascinating, but for me the reason that I like and appreciate stocks so much is because they stocks produce profits. Stocks are an asset that produces uh, cash flow and profits, and that profits can be used to increase the value of the business or to pay out to uh, to investors. What I didn't understand about crypto, and it's still hard for me to wrap my head around, is where are the where is the cash flow, or how how do you value what what any given crypto asset is uh, is worth? Other than to say, well, if more people use it in the future, and that's going to make it more demand for it. Uh, one of the big bull arguments for Bitcoin is there's only going to be twenty one million Bitcoin and there's 7 billion humans, right? So there's no way that everyone on earth could even own one uh, Bitcoin. And that 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 seems to, to make sense. I just don't fully understand the forcing function that is going to translate. Okay, that, that means that the price is going to uh, go up. Uh, having said that, I do own a tiny little bit of crypto, uh, crypto myself, and the more I look at it and the more I, I, I study it, I could see increasing my allocation to crypto over time, knowing full well that it, it, it's not something that I can, I can value. Yeah, there was uh, someone was mentioning to me, I think it was 
Barney Whiter, the um, the escape artist, he has a blog in the UK, etc. And he was talking about, you know, market capitalization of crypto is like 0.5% or something of the total market. So he was saying, it might behoove you to consider having 0.5% of your own asset allocation of having some crypto in it, right? Because if you are a true market investor, quote unquote, uh, it would make some sense to at least have a little bit of holding in crypto. With an asset like that, I, I would view that as a potential asset that offers asymmetrical risk reward, right? If you put, let's just say, 5% of your net worth or whatever small percentage you want, 1% of your net worth into crypto, okay, what, what is the upside potential uh, of crypto? In theory, unlimited. In theory, if it went up 10x, if it went up 100x, if it went up 1,000x, that is all in the realm of possible things that could could happen. What's the downside uh, of crypto? Well, it goes to zero, right? So if you're willing to risk 1% of your net worth into crypto, you could potentially 10x your entire net worth on crypto. And if that 1% goes to zero, well, then you still have 99%. So it's an, it's an asymmetric, it offers investors an asymmetric risk reward. Um, but again, the, 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 the future of crypto is it's the Wild West. It, it, you could tell me anything about the price of Bitcoin five years from now, and I'd believe it. You could say it's going to be $10 million or it's going to be a dollar. And I'd be like, both are in the realm of possibilities. The other way around that, I guess, is if you're looking for a little bit less asymmetric risk returns, is you can invest in equities in companies that are involved in crypto one way or another. So they might be involved in the infrastructure. They might be using crypto in an interesting way. So there are ways of using the equity market to still have some crypto exposure. Yeah, certainly. So although the alternatives are one way to look at increasing your returns over the next decade, the other thing for index investors to consider is whether they may want a small allocation to go to individual stocks. When you say that to your average index investor, they kind of look at you like, well, how would I ever know exactly what to invest in? You actually have a checklist that you use when you're evaluating companies. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, I've been investing again for more than 15 uh, years. And uh, prior to actually being smart enough to create a checklist for myself, I was kind of keeping a lot of information about companies in my head. I now run uh, essentially any company that I come across through my investing checklist. And that the checklist is designed to be a filtering mechanism uh, for any stock that I come across to say, to basically say, is this a company that could potentially enter my portfolio or is this a company that I am just never going to be interested in? Uh, so to develop the checklist, what I did was I, I came up with a, a list of all of the business attributes that I find attractive about a company. Uh, I want a company that has a lot of cash and no debt. I want a company that has a high gross margin, is profitable, is free cash flow positive, has a competitive advantage, an invested management team, operating leverage, et cetera. All these attributes. Then I simultaneously made another list. And that list was, what are all the attributes that I don't want in, in, in an investment? For example, uh, I don't like it when a company gets the bulk of its revenue from just a few customers. I want a company to have thousands or even millions uh, of customers. I don't like it when a company is dependent on some outside force for success. So I don't want it to be dependent on oil prices or fuel prices or interest rates or something that the management team has absolutely no uh, control over. I don't like it when a company is diluting itself very, very heavily. Etc. So I made this big list of both. Then I put those two together and I devised a weighed scoring system for measuring uh, the attributes that I see. So as I'm researching any, any company, I'm going down my checklist from top to bottom and I'm filling out a score, looking at each, each category that I believe is, is, um, is a positive business attribute and subtracting points for those that are negative business attributes. The companies that come out the other end, the highest scoring ones, are, are the companies that are most appealing to me as an investor. And then I, broadly speaking, try and fill my portfolio with the ones that I'm most attractive to and avoid the ones that I'm not attracted to. Let me ask you a few questions about that. First and foremost, how easy is it to find this type of information? So you have a series and a set of criteria. I know that people who are not as involved in doing this, our biggest question is, well, how, how do I find all that information? Yeah, that's something that we teach people to do on my um, on my YouTube channel. We literally every week take a company we've never researched before and 
fill out the checklist top to bottom, uh, showing you on screen how, how to go to the SEC filings, how to, how to find that information, et cetera. But if you were just doing this on your own and you didn't know anything, of course you'd be overwhelmed. Like if, if you asked me 15 years ago, what is this company's balance sheet? I would look at you with a blank stare and say, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, so anyway, that, 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 that is of course the real cost. The real cost of individual investing is the cost to educate yourself and the cost of your time to go out and, and, and find this information. And there's also the, the plenty of mind games that investing can, can, can play with you. Uh, if you own, if you own a stock that you really believe in, well, that stock is going to move not in lock step with the market. So the entire market could be up and the stock that you own could be down. And that you might have you might have picked a great stock, but when you own individual stocks, they are not going to match the, the they're not guaranteed to match the returns in the market. By the way, that's why you're investing in them. You're expecting a higher return than the market, but the, the cadence of the return could be vastly different from the market. So it's very easy to say to yourself, well, did I buy a bad company if the, if the stock is down when the market is, is up? Um, so th- there's a lot, a lot, a lot that goes into uh, picking individual stocks, which again, is one of the many reasons why it's not for everyone. How long does it usually take you to evaluate a specific company? Like, is that something that's weeks, days, hours, minutes? Like how long? Depends on the company. So I've been doing this for a long enough time that I can go, I can have an opinion on the company in about an hour, hour and a half. But I also have been studying in the markets for years and I can understand business models uh, relatively, relatively quickly. If I was starting from scratch, it would probably, this same process probably take me at least five or 10 hours. Now I've noticed in all these calculations you're talking about, you haven't really mentioned price. Like, is current price go into this thought process, or is it really about assuming that if it's a good company, the price will eventually go up? Well, price is an interesting word that you throw out because when most people say price, they think of the stock price. And that is something that trips a lot of people up, myself included, when I first started out. I used to believe when I first started that I had to buy stocks that were under $10 per share because that's all I could quote unquote afford. Right. I wanted to buy if I had five hundred dollars to invest, I, I want to own 50 shares of a ten dollar stock. I don't want to own one share or point one share of a five hundred or five thousand uh, dollar stock. So that was a mistake that that I made uh, early on. Uh, by the way, on that front, it doesn't matter how many shares of a of a stock you own. What matters is how much capital you have in in, in a stock. Uh, so throwing th- throwing that aside, I think the bigger point you're getting to is the valuation of a company, meaning how much investors are valuing the company's revenue and profits today, and those can be judged by very simple metrics, such as the price to sales ratio or the price to earnings uh, ratio. So valuation is not a part of my checklist. Uh, the, the checklist that I have is purely about evaluating business quality. Business quality is, is, is step one and, and the most important thing. From there, what actually enters my portfolio is, is a combination of business quality, long-term potential, and valuation. So, but but for me, step one is always business quality, and that's because I've learned that lesson the hard way many, many, many times. Uh, essentially, I want to fill my portfolio with nothing but the highest quality companies uh, that I can find. Period. If those companies are trading at attractive valuations, great. If they're not, but the potential is still huge, I will still buy them. Which is something that is backwards uh, to many people, my former self included. When it comes to valuation for those people who are not used to doing this, is that just some derivation of the P-E ratio or is there something more complex that you look at? Yeah, the P-E ratio, again, is a very, very simple valuation tool that uh, people can use to figure out, is this stock expensive? Is this stock cheap? And like any tool, it's useful in some circumstances and it's useless in, in other circumstances. So when people learn about the price to earnings ratio, uh, again, my former self included, they universally apply it to all companies all the time. And they, they, they say, okay, the price to earnings ratio of Apple is, I don't know what it is, 25, 30, uh, whatever. And that, that's the same thing as the price to earnings ratio of Jeez, uh, Zscaler, which is like Zscaler would have a price earnings ratio of a couple hundred or something like that. And you would say, oh, I could never buy the, that one. It's too, too high. You have to know when to apply and when to look at the ratios and when to not look at them and when to just throw throw them uh, out. My favorite example of this is uh, myself in 2005. Have you ever heard of the company Salesforce.com? Yes. 
Okay. Salesforce.com was a publicly traded company in 2005. I learned about them because the business that I was looking for became a customer. And I was like, instantaneously was like, this is awesome. Like this software is amazing. And then I checked it out and the stock was publicly traded, but the stock was trading at a hundred times earnings. So I said, nope, can't buy it. hundred times earnings, way too expensive. You can probably guess what's going to happen next. That <laughs> stock is up over 2000% uh, from 2005. So because I passed on it, because it was insanely expensive, that would have actually been a fantastic time to, to, to buy that stock. And that has happened to me many, many, many times. So that's one of, the, one, one of the reasons why I've learned to focus on the quality of the business first and the valuation eighth. So the Brian Fraldi of today would have looked at that stock from 2005 and said, okay, the PE ratio is quite high, but this is a very, very high value company with great growth potential. So it might even be worth buying in at this current valuation. Correct. The, the, uh, my process today centers more about market capitalization and the long-term potential. Market capitalization is just the current value of a company's equity. So it's the number of shares that exist times the current share price. In that case, back in 2005, Salesforce.com was somewhere around a $3 billion company, a $3 billion company. Uh, today, uh, Salesforce.com is a $300 billion company. So I'm sorry, I was wrong by an order of magnitude. I missed out on a 60 or 70 bagger uh, in, in, in that case. But nowadays, I look at the market cap and then ask myself, if this company is successful, how big could the market cap be? Or could I see this market cap one day being 30 billion, 50 billion? If the answer there is yes, and I think it has, again, asymmetric uh, risk, risk reward, I'll be much more likely to buy it regardless of the valuation. We are talking with Brian Ferraldi. He has an intense interest in money, personal finance, and investing, which eventually led him to become a writer at Motley Fool in 2015. We are currently talking about the future of the equities markets in the 2020s. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private sector, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and more, in state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from the 46 IPOs or sale exits of their investments. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. That's ourcrowd.com slash EAI. We are talking to Brian Feraldi. His book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?, will be released by Choose FI Media early next year. Brian, we were just talking about making a checklist. And it sounds like over the years, you've really honed your checklist to be exactly what it needs to be for you. 
for a new investor, at least someone transitioning from index to maybe doing a little more stock investing, does it make sense for them to come up with their own checklist of things that's important to them? Or is it the kind of thing of like, why recreate the wheel? That's up for that, that, them to decide. But uh, and, and by the way, my da- my checklist is freely downloadable if anybody wants a, a, a copy of it. Um, but before you start investing, I would really encourage you to just take the time to write down, uh, write, write it down. What are you looking for in, in a stock? What attributes are you looking for in any given investment? And what attributes do you want to avoid in, in any given uh, investment? That process alone is really, really worthwhile to you because it'll help you to filter through the thousands of companies that are available to you at any given time and, and be able to judge for yourself whether or not that company deserves a spot in your portfolio. If you're looking for ideas there, again, my checklist is freely downloadable and it's downloadable and customizable. So the the scoring system that I have in there, I don't claim is right. I just claim that it's the best version that I've found uh, so far, but you can easily take it and adapt it based on your criteria so that it makes more sense for what you're looking for. Yeah, a great example of that is if people are interested in socially responsible investing, you know, they can look at ESG qualities and build that into their checklist, which so one person might have that as part of their checklist while another person may not. Certainly. So a big debate for anyone who's interested in investing in equities is dividend versus non-dividend stock funds or dividend versus non-dividend stocks. We've kind of talked about this in the past. I don't want to rehash the whole argument, but do you see dividend stocks being positioned any differently over the next decade? Yeah. So if you look back historically at the long-term returns of the market, the data is clear. Dividends matter. Uh, the returns that you get from dividends and dividend reinvestments is is a is is a an enabler of the long-term returns that the market ha- has driven, and there are lots of investors out there that ex- that focus exclusively on 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 dividend stocks. I think that dividend investing is a fine uh, it's a fine strategy for for some people to to choose. It's not something that I personally focus on. I am much more focused on high growth, uh, long-term, what I call compounding machines, which are companies that I can invest a dollar in today. And that company will grow that dollar into $10 in the next five or, or, or 10 years. I'm much more interested in that than investing a dollar in them today and then getting two cents back in, uh, as a dividend payment over the course of a, of a year. But there's there's nothing wrong with going with a dividend uh, dividend approach. One mistake, though, or one one uh, thing that I would point out about dividend investing uh, that I think some dividend investors get wrong. Again, my former self included is some dividend investors focus exclusively on the yield that they get uh, from from an investment. So they the way that they're sorting for dividends is by saying, "Oh, this company is, has a dividend yield of four percent, five percent, six percent." It's far more interesting than me than a dividend that has a yield of half a percent or or one percent. I think the thing that uh, those investors are are missing is yes, dividend is an important component of return, but it's a component. It's not the entire return itself. In fact, if you buy a, div- a dividend stock that has a six percent yield and that stock goes nowhere or down during the time that you've uh, you've held it, uh, you've blundered. Uh, you have been better off financially by just buying the index fund and and taking in the one and a half percent dividend yield that um, you would get by owning that. And it's very common for companies that have very high dividend yields to have their share price stagnant, underperform the market, or, or, or go down. A high dividend yield is a way of um, the market is signaling that the business is in trouble or the business will not be able to grow at a, uh, at a market rate over the next couple of years. And the only return that you're going to get from that stock is through the dividend itself. So I would encourage investors that are focused on dividends and high yields to really focus on total return, not just the yield. I always got stuck on this idea of forced liquidation, right? So to me, a dividend always felt like forced liquidation, which is fine. But as you were saying, if the dividend is the only portion of the yield that you're really collecting, that may not be so great in the long term. Yeah, they're they're not a perfect substitute for bonds uh, either. Some people are, are using dividend stocks as a substitute for bonds. Uh, bond prices are generally pretty pretty stable. 
there's there, there's no rule saying that a dividend stock can't go down a lot. Uh, and if you look back at uh, recent history, even some some big dependable dividend payers like GE have seen enormous uh, drawdowns in, in their share price. And that's what can happen when a business gets in trouble. So right now we're referring to why stocks do well or don't do well, whether it's dividend producing or not. I want to transition to your book. Why does the stock market go up? Tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book. For years, one of the most the the, the most pressing question that I've had about in, investing was the title of the book. Everything that I've been taught my entire life has been centered around like you know the principle. You say to anybody, uh, "What goes up? What, what's the end of that sentence? What goes up must come down." There you go. It never made sense to me how there was this thing called the stock market that endlessly went up. Like it just made absolutely no sense at, at, at all to me. And every time I was exposed to the stock market as a kid would always be at the str- extremes. So I remember in 1999 reading a newspaper that said NASDAQ is up 200 points today or whatever it was and being like, wow, that's that's good, I guess. I don't know what that means, but that sounds good. And then I remember in uh, 2001, the stock the stock market was just crashing, and I was like, "All right, that's it. The stock market had a good run, but it's over, right? It's it's over from here." And then I was like, during the 2000s, it came back, and then it crashed again, and I was like, "I I don't understand this. What is the thing that makes the stock market?" always recover from crashes. Like that just never made any sense to me at all. And I would surmise that based on the conversations that I've had with people in my life that are also investors, but I would just say, do you know why the stock market goes up and always get blank blank stares? And I know that because I myself just did not understand it because we're not taught anything about the fundamentals of how how the stock market works. And if you don't understand the why behind why the stock market goes up uh, over time, it's like like existing in the world and not understanding gravity. It's like saying, sure, I throw the ball in the air and it always comes down. I have no idea why it comes down, but it always comes down. Well, I think some people feel that way about the stock market. They know it's just supposed to go up, but they don't know why uh, it's going up. So that was just a huge question that I had for myself. And I never came across any book that that explained that in, in, in a simplistic way that I could understand. So I wrote it. Is this more of a philosophical book or a tactical book? Because what you're describing is a very philosophical look about how our markets work, ultimately, why probably we should be investing in them. Yeah. So the book is designed to be a bridge for extreme beginners in the stock in the stock market. Like if you said to somebody, what's like the first book that you would teach them if they want to understand the stock market? There are lots of great great books out there uh, that have been written historically. Uh, the Intelligent Investor, the, the Simple Path to, to, to Wealth, One Up on Wall Street, The Motley Fool Investing Guide. All those are wonderful, wonderful books. Anything written by Jack Bogle, they're, they're all great books. And they, they, they do convince you that, yes, investing in the stock market is a, is a good idea. But again, I even reading those wonderful books, none of them really got into the core of the why behind investing in the stock market is such a good idea. So this book is more about answering the extreme basic questions for, for, for new investors. It's not about a tactical how to, do, how to do this, although I do touch upon that in the book. But to me, the value of the book is really, if, if somebody read the book and they came away and said, okay, I now understand why the stock market goes up, why it crashes, and why it will, why it will recover, uh, that to me would be a win. Do you think conversely, too many people right now are operating within the markets, maybe even because of things like fintech, which make it so easy to put your money in the market, take it out? We're so agile nowadays. Do you think your average investor doesn't really understand those things? If, if you went up to the average Robinhood uh, investor, and not to pick on them, I think they're a fine broker. Uh, but if you, if, you, if you showed them a long-term picture of the, of the, of the market and said, why did this happen? Uh, what is the mechanism that, that made this go up? I would, I would surmise that more often than not, you would get the wrong answer. Um, so I, I do think that it is a, it, it's just a 
basic piece of education that's missing today. And, and more importantly, there's a hundred million Americans just, just in America alone that have money in the stock market. These are people that have put money into a 401k, a 403b, an IRA. They're investing through their employer plan. They have money in the market. And I just know through interacting with people in my everyday life, if you were to ask a hundred of them, why has the stock market gone up over the last hundred years, you would get 99 wrong answers. Uh, so this the, the, this book is really designed to give the people that are new to the to investing the fundamental basic uh, understanding that they need to know so that they have confidence that why why the stock market has gone up and why it will continue to do so. And is the answer different for different markets? Like we are generally talking about the U.S. based stock markets or system of stock here. Do the answers are they the same throughout Europe and other places people invest? So the stock, the U.S. stock market is the one that I studied. It's the one that I know the best. It's the one that I have the uh, the data on. I did not do any do analysis on any foreign markets. So this is this is primarily designed at talking about the um, the United States stock market and specifically the S and P five hundred. And tell me when you think this book's going to be coming out, and where can we find it? The book will be about uh, available for purchase sometime in early 2022, aiming for the first quarter, we hope, but it should be available um, at everywhere that books are, are sold. And yes, it will be on Amazon. And I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life. And if people want to touch base with you, how can they reach out to you? Uh, what's up next in my life is getting this book done. Uh, uh, writing a book is a is a huge undertaking uh, that I did not have a full appreciation for when I started this process. So that will be it's it, that'll be like giving birth to a kid. Um, <laughs> um, which I'm I'm just kidding, ladies. Um, I know that that's way harder. Uh, but it's it's been a huge undertaking for me to uh, to write this book and and get it out into the world. So that's what's up next for me. And uh, if you're interested in connecting with me and learning about it, uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Brian. Brian Feraldi or on YouTube, um, Brian Feraldi, YT, YT for YouTube. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Brian Feraldi. That's a wrap. Just a note about this episode with Brian Feraldi. As you all know, I am a big fan of broad-based index investing. I wanted to have Brian on today to talk about an alternative view. The fact is that we don't know what's going to be happening with the stock market over the next decade or two because the market has been so up for so many years. It is just natural for us to suspect that returns on equities will be lower over the next decade. It just makes sense if it's all going to average out to returns of 7 to 10% over long term. We've been so much above that for the last decade that we'd expect things to go down. Well, I'm not telling you that you should stock pick, and I'm not telling you that you should get involved in alternative investments. What I do believe is that you need to know about them. I think we can't put our heads in the sand and just decide because we don't like the idea of something because it makes us anxious that we shouldn't learn about it. It is ultimately up to you whether you decide to put separate stocks or alternatives into your asset allocation, whether you want to buy crypto or not is completely your own decision. But I think here at Earn and Invest, our message is that you should understand these investment options. You should follow them and study them. Ultimately, you might decide to buy them or you might not, but I just want to make sure that we make this knowledge available, that we open up your eyes and your horizons so that you can see what is out there to ultimately make what is the best choice for you and your investment plans. So as always here at Earn and Invest, this is not investment advice. This is more for entertainment to teach you about what is possibly out there. What you decide to invest in is ultimately up to you. I also wanted to remind everybody that there are multiple ways to interact with the Earn and Invest podcast. I am working on my new website, jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. That will be a hub for everything podcast, personal finance, medicine, public speaking, pretty much all the different hats that I wear. Again, that's jordangrummet.com. 
I am working on it now. Right now, if you go to that website, it'll bounce you to my medical blog. But eventually, hopefully over the next week or two, soon after this goes live, we'll have a full page up there as well as it will promote my new book, Taking Stock, which will be out in August of 2022. Other places you can find Earned and Invest is, of course, on our Facebook page. Go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Become a member of our group and part of our community where we discuss whatever is happening in the world today as well as our episodes on the Earn and Invest podcast. While you're there, you can also stop by at earnandinvest.com. There is a personal finance blog there. There are some videos as well as each one of the podcast episodes. Check us out. Multiple ways to interact with Earn and Invest. Thank you for listening to the show, and we will see you next week. Sweet. Awesome. Was there anything you felt like we should talk about that we didn't? Like anything nope. kind of in broad base that you that you kind of wanted to get out there that, that needs to be said? Uh nope. I mean, uh we we didn't touch upon the tokenization, which is which is good because it's not something we, that I'm and which was super familiar with. Was but. never my point. I just kind of yep. brought it up to say, hey, all of a sudden this idea hit me that maybe just closing your eyes to everything else and being a blind index investor isn't necessarily 100% the way to go. Um, I like the conversation and I think it did teach on your, I think it did touch a lot on your wheelhouse because I think it's, what it's really about, I think that we all have to learn is how to start analyzing different opportunities, different investment opportunities in the world. Because mm -hmm. I think we don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I don't know what crypto is going to do to our markets. I don't know what you know, all these alternative investments are going to do. I don't know. Like you said, maybe we're going to have really crappy suboptimal returns just based on the normal up and downs of the market because we've had such a run for the next 10, 20 years. So I think it behooves us all to start opening our minds to these different different types of investments and understanding how they work, even if we're not necessarily even putting money into them yet. Um, and I think if, that's I mean, an if you're important in, message. If you're in the FIRE community and you're banking on a 4% withdrawal rate and the next yeah. returns over the next decade yeah. are zero. Could be crap. Yeah. <laughs> it, and, and, and It might be tough. And it would still work within our framework of how we understand the stock market, right? Because we're generally talking about returns over 20, 30, 40 years. You can have a pretty bad slump for a while. Um, yes. And so that's why I think the it's stock, a great conversation. So the stock market peaked in 1929. Do you know what year it, it, it resumed that peak? Like 1940s, wasn't it? 54. 54, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, when you now look that at was, the... That was price, the total return, because dividend yields were super high back then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It took it, it less than 20 years before your real return was higher, but just like... I, I'm not predicting that, by the way. But yeah. if, mm -hmm. again, if you if you told me that 10 years from now the stock market was exactly where it is today, I would it, be like... It, it wouldn't surprise sense. you. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.